Whistleblower Report, exposing lies, deceptions, and all that has assaulted our way of life. We must take back our freedom and live as God designed in a free America that honors our Constitution and our Creator. Our experts in medicine, ministry, law, military, environment, and education empower us to grow together as a nation. such a time as this, the Whistleblower Report offers truth and solutions. Welcome to the Whistleblower Report Vaccine Report today. This is Dr. Lee with a uh, great lineup with Dr. Yeadon and Dr. Gilthorpe, and we're going to be talking about how do you make sense of the conflicting claims about the COVID-19 experimental gene therapy shots? There are many speculations about what may be in them, and many of which are very scary and frightening. And there is catastrophic known provable damage, both medically, scientifically, and in the actuarial and the injury data coming in. So there is much that is known unequivocally, conclusively about the damage of these experimental COVID shots. Dr. Eden has been warning about that for three years. I've been speaking for the last at least the last two years on the damage that I'm seeing medically in my medical practice and the way in which damaging the ovaries and testicles, for example, can affect every aspect of our health because our reproductive hormones affect every organ system in our body, including the brain. So what we want to do today is give an overview from the scientific and medical perspective, how do you make sense of all of Some are wild claims, some are ones that are speculating that some are ones that are based on patents. And how do you make sense of all that? How does, what, what do patents mean? And Dr. Eden and Dr. Gilthorpe will speak to that. And what does it mean when something is listed as an ingredient in a patent versus what is actually in the shot and what may actually be causing damage? But fundamentally, I think all of us want America and the world listening to know there is so much absolutely unequivocally known damage from these shots that our focus has been to stick with what we know is provable, what we know is contamination and poor manufacturing practices and no quality control and no safety studies and failure to disclose the ingredients by the manufacturer as they're required to do and the way in which that damage is playing out in the human body. For example, there was a new study just recently that showed that ophthalmologists and opticians who do retinal scans are finding 
micro blood clots and damage to the arteries and capillaries in the retina, which is affecting vision. But the more alarming aspect of these findings is that that predicts later cardiovascular damage, heart attacks, and strokes. Therefore, we are with the damage we're seeing on examination of actual patients in practice, in medicine, ophthalmology, and the optometry specialists who are evaluating doing the retinal scans, that damage is happening right now. That is provable, and that has predictive value for the damage to come. We are looking at a skyrocketing epidemic of heart attacks and strokes in the next two to five, six years. So America, we want to give you a balanced view. We want to help you understand the conflicting claims, and we want to help you understand the real damage and how to think with a common sense mindset about things you read in the media. So with that, as a physician, I can talk to the medical damage I'm seeing in my practice. Dr. Yeadon is a career big pharma insider with extraordinary scientific background. And Dr. Gilthorpe, as you know, has a 30-year career as a cell and molecular biologist with experience in virology and immunology and a a stellar researcher. So we bring a variety of credentials to this discussion. And I'm going to start with Dr. Eden because he's had to work with drug development over his career. He knows what patents mean. He knows how to interpret them. And we've been hearing a lot. There have been many different individuals and even legal cases that have focused on with by, by attorneys that have focused on patents. I know that Dr. David Martin has done a great deal of work on that, for example. So let's look at what does that really mean? And Dr. Eden, let's uh, go through some things you were explaining to mm-hmm. me before we started the show today. Yeah, I can certainly do that. So you know, Dr. Lee, a pleasure to be uh, on your platform and great to speak to your uh, you know, the audience here with, with Jonathan Gilthorpe. Uh, I always like to uh, do just a little bit of reminding people or in fact asking people, it's a request here, that um, we, I regard us as simply uh, nodes along a chain of communication. So each of us independently on this particular program arrived at an understanding that things were not as they seem and that they were you know, deeply unpleasant and threatening. And we've, we've come together uh, to try and communicate that. But here's the thing. So if you're listening to me now, that great, thank you very much. But people in your circle who are not listening to this right now, it's unlikely I can ever reach them. Uh, and the mainstream media, I'm afraid, it can be demonstrated have been you know, both lying and simply not commenting, uh, not discharging their responsibility to hold the executive to account, which they've done in democracies for centuries. So my request here is at whatever level you feel you can do, if you're not a scientist, I'm not expecting you to to be me, or or if you're not a doctor, don't be Dr. Lee, and so on. But if you take a a few germs of information from these broadcasts, share them cheerfully and relentlessly. Don't be frightened of being 
laughed at or whatever, I would say to people that if you were frightened of being laughed at as a result of articulating what's going on, uh, it's much more frightening if you don't speak. So uh, I'm asking you to continue that chain of communication because with that, a large proportion of the population will realise something's up and we're much more likely to resist, in my view. So that's just a bit of background. Uh, Dr Lee's right. I've uh, had a career in applied research. Uh, I I was once responsible worldwide for Pfizer's respiratory analogy uh, research and early development. And that had me coming into contact with, with great, clever people from every discipline under the sun that you need in order to think of an idea, um, test it, and then eventually get onto it with either a chemical molecule or, or some kind of biological material. And at the center of the world uh, for people like medicinal chemists or people who patent you know, antibody drugs, for example, is th- this very idea of patent. So, so patents are really, they're very simple in concept and, and complicated sometimes in, in the doing. But the simple idea is so powerful. Um, a patent is uh, an exclusivity granted to you by the state, you the inventor, uh, in return for you disclosing everything about that invention to the point that someone else would be able to do it uh, themselves just by following your disclosure. But you've got this um, exclusivity period where although the other person can uh, can play with your invention, they cannot commercialize, they cannot make money. If they do, they've infringed. Uh, and if your patent is judged to be valid and granted, then you will win a legal case against them. But what happens um, with patents is an incredible bootstrapping of the speed or, or an augmentation of the speed of innovation in a society. So if I have an invention, I could in the past keep it to myself as a trade secret because that way, if I guard the secret well enough, then in perpetuity, I, I can make this thing that people like and they don't know how it's done. But if you think about that for a moment, that trade secret, people are highly incentivized to break into your offices, bribe your staff, uh, threaten you, get your product analyzed by the best people in the world. Because if they can crack your secret, nothing stops them taking all your market from you. And so over time, it was realized that innovations were going rather slowly because people didn't want to share them. They realized if they shared them, they, they could be ripped off. And the idea of patents was, was born. I don't know how long ago it is, but you know, some hundreds of years ago. And so what you need to do is write down on, on a piece of paper is specifically your invention and what you're claiming. And the three tests required for a patent are, is it new? You, you can't patent something that's already known. Uh, so it has to be novel. The next thing is it has to be useful. At least theoretically, someone would say, yeah, if you make a, a Meccano kit or Lego toy out of this, a molecular structure out of this, yeah, I can see that this could, this might be useful to reduce your too high blood pressure or whatever it would be. So utility is the second test. You can't just patent something that's, that's just uh, some something interesting but not useful. Otherwise, people would just get literally go and patent everything in the world, hoping in the future that they would be useful. And they'd go, aha, I own the patent. So that's the reason for the utility. Novelty must be new. Utility must be useful. And then the last one is, is almost the hardest but the most important. It's got to contain an invention. It's got to be an inventive step. So, um, and, and the test, the language they use is someone who is as knowledgeable as you are, 
in the field, but completely lacks imagination, which of course is a difficult concept. If, if in fact the thing you are describing, they would not be able to infer it. It would not be, the test is not be obvious. So if, for example, we've gradually been uh, increasing the number of, uh, the width of motor car tires to increase adhesion during racing, if you came out with a new tire, that would be useful and it's a new, so you can patent it and it's like a quarter of an inch wider. Somebody would say, that's an obvious innovation. So that's that's not patentable. You have to come up with something better than that. So these three things, they're novelty, usefulness, and invention. It must be inventive. That's really what sits at the heart of patents. And then people often send me patents and they'll say, oh, I read that, you know, Johnson & Johnson or whatever it is, I've seen all of these chemicals listed in their patents. Does that mean, Dr. Eden, that it's going to be in the shots? And, I, and Jonathan uh, will expand. But the point is here that you might claim lots of things, but they are not a recipe. They're not. The patent is not the recipe for the product covered by the patent itself. So uh, you cannot infer really very much about what's in the product by looking at the patent. Now, if the patent says it contains A and B in this ratio, uh, and made as a solid and packed up in this way. Yeah, you can be pretty sure that's what it's in there. But if it's uh, if it says you know a solid and a salt, and the salt could be, and they give you a long list, you you can't work out what's in it. You're actually going to have to look at the individual product. So so that's just a little primer uh, on patents. They generally last somewhere between 20 and 25 years, depending on the country. Uh, and as I say, the point is to bootstrap and augment inventions whilst protecting the inventor so they can disclose their invention, still benefit exclusively, uh, but it allows the people around them to learn more quickly and, and create better things more quickly. So, Jonathan, how was that as a start of a 10? It was a superb introduction, uh, Dr. Mike. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... I think we're in living in an age now where it's so easy to access information. You know, anyone can turn on the computer or take their phone and Google a word and get a whole string of, of hits. Uh, it's very easy to then go down those lists of hits and follow word to word and, and, you know, pick up on a single word and then think that this has significance. But if you don't really have a, an, an expert background in the area, sometimes it's very difficult to to value what what you're actually reading and what it means and i mean i i everyone um experiences this i experience it all the time in my field as well reading about complex scientific topics and trying to understand things that i know a little bit about but i don't really know from basic principles um and then we're living in this age of, of misinformation and that's used both you know misinformation is spread by all parties i think we are living in an information war and it's very difficult for people to value the information that they're getting and ask is this is this real or or is this just uh, you know something spread on the internet that became very popular i'll just take th three examples i think because it's not just patents where that information has been i mean in in the movement so that we are living in unprecedented times uh, we are being manipulated by governments and extra governmental bodies to try and force us into this great reset agenda 2030 future, which I think none of us really want to go into, where we lose all freedoms, we own nothing, but we are happy. 
Uh, and as part of that, we'll all need a digital ID and we'll only be able to use digital currencies. We won't have any access to cash and we actually won't own anything. And and that's been called a conspiracy theory, but it's really not. I mean, that is the plan. I mean, it, it may not be the future, but there are people planning for that. Um, and therefore, quite often misinformation is used to try and throw people off the scent because once the population wakes up to these plans which we're now seeing for example with 15 minute cities and uh, digital ids uh, vaccine passports then when people realize what the the goal of these is then then they won't get them through because there'll be too much um pushback um so i've just uh, three examples that I, i remember quite clearly so not just from patents, but from official documents. So I'll start with a patent. There was a patent that was put out on the internet a few months ago, which was written by Richard A. Rothschild. He was the main applicant, and it was called System and Method for Testing for COVID-19. So this was published, I think, in 2015, the initial patent. And one important thing to remember with patents is that you can publish an initial one and then you can update it. So as long as you, as, as Mike mentioned, it needs to have a new invention, it needs to have use. But if you find a new use or a new invention, you can update your patent. And I think they usually run for 17 years um, once you have secured one. So the clock starts to tick. You need to make use of your invention quite quickly. And that's why quite often drug companies don't patent things till the very last minute because they don't want their patent to run out because then they lose priority over selling under that patent protection. Um, But, you know, you can update it. So if you went into this Rothschild's patent, you know, it's the right name on there. Everyone thinks the Rothschilds are in charge of the New World Order, uh, and they may well be. But um, I dug back and looked at this patent to see if they really had patented something for COVID-19 before it actually actually existed. And no, they hadn't. What they'd done was update an existing patent, which was for other viruses prior to 2019. And then when COVID-19 came, they updated the patent with a new name. And you can see this if you look through the history. But this spread with like wildfire on, on um, social media and other channels, you know, to say that the, the Rothschilds knew pre-2019 about COVID-19, and they'd already patented it. Um, Another example is in the existences of viruses or not. And we've discussed this on the show before about whether deaths due to the COVID-19 pandemic were all due to a novel virus, and and maybe some were, but certainly a lot were not. Um, And Denny Rancor from Canada has done some excellent work on looking at excess all-cause mortality to show that Actually, there are a lot of things that don't coincide with particular waves of viruses, um, but that's another story. But, you know, there has been a lot of information on social media saying that viruses absolutely don't exist because they've never been isolated, uh, which simply isn't true. It's just um, a certain group of people would like you to isolate them in a specific way. But it, let's not get into that too deeply. But what I would like to say is that one of the lines of evidence to say that COVID SARS-CoV-2 never existed was a document on the CDC homepage that talked about the PCR test for SARS-CoV-2. And in that document, there was a statement that said, because there were no purified isolates of SARS-CoV-2 available, we optimized this PCR test on a synthetic RNA molecule. Um, 
And, you know, scientifically, that statement is perfectly okay. <laughs> I would have done the same thing in an experiment as well. I wouldn't have taken a virus isolate. I would have taken a synthetic molecule to optimize my assay against. But it was twisted and used to say, well, that means that COVID never existed or COVID SARS-CoV-2 never existed, um, which I don't think is true. I mean, there's millions of samples of sequence out on the database that, that show that many independent labs have sequenced SARS-CoV-2. So there is a biological entity circulating, um, I think, with extreme confidence there is something there. But this was another example of way words were twisted to give them another meaning. And then if people weren't really aware of how this works, you know, what's the basic science beneath it, they wouldn't know. Um, final example, I think, which is another good one is this question of whether there's graphene oxide in the shots, whether there's nanotech in the shots. And, you know, there may well be. I mean, the, thing, the, the important thing for everyone to grasp here is that we don't know what are in these vials. They've been made to such poor quality uh, and with such variable quality. We don't really know what's in them. And, and people are definitely becoming sick after receiving them. Uh, so what is that due to? Is it due to RNA? Is it due to other things, impurities in the vials? Is it due to DNA that shouldn't be there? Any of the above could be true because we simply don't know what's in them. And the regulators didn't do their job of making sure they were produced to a certain standard. But there was an official FDA document released where they, a Pfizer, where they in a method section, they talked about using graphene uh, on electron microscopy grids. So if you do electron microscopy to look at very small samples, like samples of protein or samples of virus, you put them on a carbon-coated grid so that when you put them in the electron microscope, you can get an image of the thing you want to look at. And in this case, they coated those grids with graphene. Um, so it was just a methodological thing. This has nothing to do with the vials at all or what's in the vials. But people then seized on that to say, aha, look, Pfizer had graphene in the shots and here is the proof. It was no proof of the sort. And, and the problem with this is what it serves to do is it undermines the, the seriously diff hard work people are doing to try and uncover what's actually in the shots and why people are dying at an alarming rate and suffering all sorts of... Um, uh, illnesses, which Dr. Lee can testify to. Um, but the problem is that these things undermine the, that those those initiatives and those efforts that people are making, because it, it just um, destroys the narrative and it gets people fighting with each other, which is really destructive. Yeah, no, I, I'd echo that, um, Jonathan. The uh, I've had really quite long discussions uh, online with people who, uh, for some reason, are convinced that Graphene is in in the uh, these shots and have accused me of, uh, as it were, being a double agent working for the other side because I won't admit it. And just to reinforce what Jonathan said, um, a couple of things: just the very basic design of these uh, these compounds is uh, a sequence, genetic sequence DNA or, or mRNA that encodes for a protein. In this case, it's the so-called the so-called spike protein that sticks out of this uh, alleged virus. I, I'm slightly less convinced than my colleagues on this call. Respectfully, I'm not convinced it's circulating, but there. But I do believe that there's been gain of function research in labs and so on. But here's the thing that I, as an experienced uh, so-called rational drug design 
new person. It's what I did for my life. When you're trying to achieve a goal, you don't just randomly pull things out of the chemical toolbox. You, you think about what you're trying to do and what would be required to accomplish that, hopefully therapeutically uh, and with an acceptable and ideally good safety profile. So when I looked at these gene-based um, uh, products that would, will cause the human body that receives the injections to express what I would describe as a non-self protein. It's something that doesn't belong in your body. Your body will recognize it as non-self and will unleash uh, an immune attack upon the tissue that's expressing the vaccine. So uh, I say that by, by design, uh, the companies, if they have manufactured these or the military, whoever it is, they chose this particular design with the intention of producing harm. It's it's simply, you know, it's un, I think that's unarguable. So there may well be, as Jonathan said, additional ingredients or technologies. I just don't know. But I'm not in any way defending the company by saying, I don't yet think the evidence for graphene is strong enough to say it's in there. I've pointed out, as I just explained, that just inherently within the design of the molecules is something I, I, that would lead me not to ever receive one, any mRNA vaccine, and strongly advise people not to get injected or have their relatives injected. Um, so so that, that's where I am. I try not to go too far beyond um, that which can be reasonably inferred or has been demonstrated. Uh, if I'm speculating, and I often do, I will say I am speculating, and here's the sort of two or three, uh, uh, you know, chains of, uh, these are the three, two or three stages that takes me from the non, the known to the speculative. Um, and But I'm I'm not yet there with, with graphene. Um, Jonathan talked about using uh, graphene in some sort of uh, x-ray microscopy. It's interesting you should mention that because uh, the graphene is, is simply a mono layer, a single layer of carbon atoms, and they're bound together in such a way as to look like a hexagonal a, a patio or a terrace of hexagonal uh, stones uh, and this monolayer that the most efficient way for the carbon atoms to be joined one to another is in this uh, this single layer it's like a sheet one atom thick uh, and because those atoms are spaced precisely uh, hexagonally apart from each other there are certain uh, x-ray microscopy techniques that you can do uh, and if if graphene oxide or graphene was there that would be the characteristic pattern and oddly enough I, I've said this 10 times online <laughs> no one's done that test and that makes me start to think something's going on here right so anyway in conclusion I cannot say it's not there uh, there are already enough bad things to explain most of what's going on in terms of toxicity, uh, and uh, but there are other things I, you know, I'm I'm not convinced are yet proven by the data. Well, I think those are just excellent points from both of you, and I I'm very grateful for that. Uh, as we conclude the first half and begin to lead to the second half, I want to emphasize what. What you just said and what Dr. Gilthorpe have, has said, the speculative claims that may be fueled by deliberate disinformation in the information war end up undermining the real known damage that is being presented globally by people like Dr. McCullough, like Dr. Malone, like 
Dr. Mackis, all of that, Dr. Um, Asim in England, who is speaking out as a cardiologist about all of the damage that we're seeing. All of us who've been speaking out about the reproductive damage, cardiovascular damage, brain damage, brain inflammation, that's real. And my concern, as Dr. Eden said today, is that when people are speculating and we don't know the source and we can't prove it, it detracts from the seriousness of what is happening that's causing disability, people unable to work because of damage from the COVID shots and people dying suddenly because of the COVID shots. So this is Dr. Lee for America with the whistleblower report, vaccine report, trying to help you make sense of the conflicting claims and pay attention to the real damage and learn what you need to do to prevent the damage and to treat it if it happens. Check out the resources on our website, www.truthforhealth.org. We are bringing you information against the lies and deception to help you save your life and your health. We will be right back after the break. Welcome back to the second half of the Whistleblower Report, Vaccine Report, with Dr. Mike Eden, Dr. Jonathan Kilthorpe, and your host, Dr. Lee for America. We are a physician and two scientists who are doing our best to bring you information to make sense of all of the conflicting claims about the COVID shots, including the government's disinformation, misinformation, when the government continues to refer to the experimental gene therapy COVID shots as safe and effective and get your boosters. I get very sick of seeing the millions of dollars that have been spent on ads on television in the United States. Get your COVID shot, get your COVID shot. And it's just a drumbeat of misinformation on that side, but equally on the side of those who are trying to expose the misinformation comes speculative claims that are not based in fact. And we're trying to bring you the information that is provable, that is causing real damage and costing people's lives. So Dr. Gilthorpe, you have some other information that you've been looking at with regard to explaining how what's in patents may not reflect what's actually in the COVID shot. You, you had an interesting discussion that you sent me by email that was analyzing some of the questions that have arisen about whether there's uh, Marburg and Ebola uh, in the COVID shots sequences for those two other viruses. If you could explain some of that uh, for our listeners to understand how all of this works when what you see in patents, how does it relate to what's actually in the product? I think that would be really helpful. Yes. I'm happy to do that, Dr. Lee. Um, yeah, so there's been some information out quite recently that, that the COVID shots contain uh, other material. So m- material which could code for proteins from 
other viruses such as Marburg and Ebola. And when I first read about that, I was, I was very shocked. And my, because I'm, I'm quite suspicious about what the next pandemic might be, you know, we're promised one by Gates and by the WHO and various actors that, that um, seem to have manipulated the last pandemic um, very, for their own benefit. So, you know, you're always on the lookout for the next one. Um, so this is something that kind of appealed to my um, my <laughs> suspicious mind, one could say. Um, but it didn't sound quite right. Although it, it is important to remember that the COVID mRNA shots, at least the Pfizer ones, they contain at most 50% intact RNA. So the RNA that's in them that codes for the spike protein, which should all be you know pristine and full length, uh, Pfizer weren't able to make the RNA to that standard. So what the European Medicines Agency did, and the FDA as well, I guess, they dropped the standard that Pfizer needed to reach in order to be able to make their product and approve it and then sell it and inject it into people's arms. So they accepted 50% uh, intact RNA. That means that the RNA is a full string that's able to be turned into a protein when the cell takes it up. Anything smaller than that won't make the same protein. It'll make something that's shorter. It's called truncated. Um, so, you know, the regulators dropped the level, the standards dramatically because the companies couldn't make their product to sufficient grade. This, this should make everyone suspicious because no other medicine in history has been, a, as far as I know, has been an, an allowed to be licensed because it was only half as good as they claimed it was. Um, you know, it's like buying a car and or buying a, a bag. Uh, no, maybe cars. It's like buying spaghetti and finding out that most of it is a short little crusty bits of dust in the bottom of the bag. Um, but they, they still enabled Pfizer to sell this and inject it into people. And I suspect Moderna's was of similar quality. Um, so if you have that level of dirtiness in, in the RNA shots, it is possible to hide other things or test other things in those vials. And there are very small sequences called microRNAs, which are small RNAs that have a, a very potent effect on a cell. They can turn a gene up or down, so they regulate the expression of an RNA, which then you know, regulates a protein. So my, microRNAs are, are very potent, and it would be possible you know, with this level of dirtiness to, to hide something like that in there, potentially a microRNA, microRNA that might lead to cancer or to other you know, effects further down the line, infertility, who knows? So it's really important that the regulator is very strict on the producers and make them produce a product which is full length and, and of high quality that you can actually verify that doesn't have all any junk. And it could be that these bits of RNA also have a, you know, an unknown side effect because nobody's ever tested. Um, anyway, so that's a long way to get to the point of saying that could be possible for a, a, a malign agent to hide something in an RNA vaccine that you wouldn't know about when you received it because nobody really knows what's in there anyway. And that, that's the main problem with the, the shots as far as I see it. We don't know what's in them. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, what happens with patents then? So what, what happened in this case is somebody had searched for the adenoviral vector for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which has um, been patented previously by Janssen Pharmaceuticals. And Johnson & Johnson did this as a partnership with Janssen. 
Uh, and this adenoviral vector that's used for COVID-19 has also been used for Marburg and Ebola. So if you search for patents and search for Marburg Ebola vaccine, you'll probably land on this page and that will take you potentially to something called PubChem, which is a repository produced by the NIH, I think, which takes information about all chemicals, all vaccines, all drugs, and puts them in a database so people can search those and look for them. Uh, and if you look up this particular mRNA, uh, sorry, not mRNA vaccine, in this case, Marburg Ebola vaccine, you'll find out that it's the same viral vector that was used for COVID-19 for Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, um, but the insert in it, the the piece that's coded for the actual antibodies that your body is meant to make is from Marburg and Ebola virus family. Um, so then if you look through that um, PubMed en PubKeb PubChem entry, you'll find out any word that was in the patent that was the original patent for this particular uh, Marburg vaccine will be listed in the document. So you'll find things like ketamine as a drug which is listed in the patent because it was used to anesthetize animals that were the vaccine was tested on. So it was part of the method for the patent, but nothing to do with the, the final product. Um, you'll also find, you know, that there are Marburg proteins in that particular patent because that's what the patent was for. It was for a Marburg uh, vaccine that was tested in, in animals, not in humans at this point. Um, so it's very easy to go and find a word that looks exciting and follow that up and realize, you know, link the word to another word to another word. But if you actually go in and read the detail of the patent and see what was the relationship of this word, how was it used and what context was it used in, you realize that there is really nothing there. Uh, you're chasing shadows. Um, so it's important, I think, just to stress that just because something's written in a patent, it doesn't mean it's necessarily in the product that is put into somebody's arm. There is a, a product information sheet and a certificate of, of certificate of compliance that lists the uh, various aspects of or in contents of what's in a particular vaccine. Um, you need to go in there and look, and and they are disclosed. Um, what I would say is pre-COVID nineteen shots we. Everybody or many people, not everybody, but many people had great faith in the regulatory processes that what was in a, a particular medicine was what was listed on on the sheet. But I don't think we can be that naive anymore, because um, if you look at the very stark difference in different batches in VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, that there were some batches that gave very few side effects and other batches that gave enormous numbers of side effects. Uh, Sasha Latipova and uh, others have reported on this. We know there's a tremendous batch-to-batch -batch variation between side effects, so that must mean there's something different in those batches that are more, must mean, likely to mean, there's something different in those batches that are giving a lot of side effects versus those that gave very few. So we well, and Dr. Gilthorpe, to that very point, if there is no regulatory oversight in the manufacturing, as Headley Reese has been exposing 
just constantly, tirelessly working to expose that, then of course there's batch variation. If there's, if they're not checking, I mean, Headley talked just this past week about the fact that there was no pre-approval site inspection done by the FDA for the manufacturing of the COVID shots. Well, if they're not even inspecting the plants where they're manufacturing it and failing to do that job, and they are not taking the oversight of the to analyze the batches for quality and compliance with what's supposed to be in them, then it, it the listeners need to understand it makes sense that there's going to be varying amounts of side effects it determined by the fact that the batches are not consistent. And Sasha Latipova in an earlier interview with our team talked about the fact that the variants could be as high as a 10,000 fold variance in the mRNA content of the shots. But I wanted to come back to something that you were talking about with the Ebola and, and Marburg glycoproteins. What, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm, as I'm, if I'm wrong, but what I've understood you to say is that in your view as a scientist working with all of this for your career, that it's not surprising to you that Ebola and Marburg glycoproteins might be listed in that PubChem entry as linked genes and proteins for this patent because the patent itself was about a viral vector vaccine for the phylovirus family, which includes Marburg, Ebola, and other in the hemorrhagic fever family. So you're saying that basically in that particular patent, it should be there because those, those linked genes and proteins should be there because they were working on a virus for the, a vaccine, sorry, for the phylovirus family. But then where we should not take the next step is to say that we shouldn't make the association that COVID-19 adenoviral vector vaccines contain the phylovirus sequences of Ebola and Marburg because that's just not correct. Have I understood it correctly from you? That was a perfect summary, Dr. Lee. Yes. Um, I mean, if, If the Marburg sequences are not in a patent for a Marburg vaccine, there is something wrong, and that (laughs) patent would never have been granted. Um, Actually, these are listed, if you go to the WHO's homepage, where they're listing um, up-and-coming treatments that might be available for these two outbreaks that have happened in Africa this spring, one in Tanzania, one in Equatorial Guinea, I think. They list these adenoviral vaccines uh, against Marburg as potential treatments. Um, but that that backbone, as we call it, the vector, the thing that takes the sequence in a virus and puts it in when it's injected in your arm, gets your cells to express that protein, could be used for any, um, any potential vaccine, one could say. Um, not necessarily safely, but... <laughs> Um, given that the AstraZeneca vaccine was pulled quite quickly in several countries because of the number of side effects it generated. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is a, it's, a, it's a vector that can be used to express a protein in a cell. 
Well, I think that's helpful to understand because it is very confusing. Even, you know, I find it confusing since I don't work in a laboratory. I'm treating patients and I don't have the research background that you do. And I find the patents very confusing to read. So I really thank you for you and, and Dr. Eden for, since you've worked with patents your whole career, I really appreciate your making some sense of all of this for the rest of us. Yeah. Yeah, they are difficult to read, but they are legally binding documents that are written often by lawyers. I mean, that maybe the first draft's written by a researcher, but uh, the claims and the the nitty gritty of them is written by a lawyer because they, these are going to be used to defend intellectual property if it comes to a court case. So they're very well, solid documents. Exactly right. In fact, they're lawyers... Um, have to be highly specialized in patent law and protecting intellectual property. And it, it is a very significant specialty in the field of law. Not everyone is involved in that. So I think that's very interesting as well. And Dr. Eden, you had some comments to make um, in the time we have in the show about the significance of mm-hmm. how much mRNA might be in the shot in any given batch yes so just to echo uh what jonathan said uh that uh i I remember reading some of the interactions between was pfizer and the european medicines agency the regulator uh, and it was clear that the technical staff evaluating the the filing that pfizer had made were very troubled because uh, they were not they, they didn't think that uh, the, the batches, multiple batches that have been made, as it were, as demonstration or exhibit batches, were consistent uh, one to another. And therefore, they were agonizing over what number, what percentage of intact mRNA they should set. And originally, it had been, I think, 70%. And then, as Jonathan correctly said, they, they literally just dropped the standard so that all of the batches would pass the past the hurdle, which is literally absurd, folks. This is not what you do. If you've got a reason for setting a standard, uh, you, you would agree that with the with the innovator, the company, and it's damn well down to them to uh, to keep working until they get it right. You know, sometimes these things take years. Uh, so, but to the specific number, I was horrified when I realized that only 50% of the uh, genetic information in the vial was a defined material. The rest, as Jonathan said, are truncate, truncated species, shorter pieces. And the reason is no one knows what, what they're going to do um, you know, in the body. You know, what happens if half a spike protein taken from the 20, 20% mark to the 70% mark, say, a middle piece? Who knows what, what does that do if you express that and then inject it into mice? You know, what does it do? We've no idea. Pfizer's no idea, the regulator's got no idea, your doctor's got no idea. But there it is in the vial, and you'll be having it jammed in your arm. It'll go around your body, and we do not know. We can't even guess. Might be nothing. Maybe, they, they'll, maybe they're dead sequences and they don't get fully, fully copied into protein or peptides, but we don't know that. And this, it, So it's just dreadful. And what I was going to say is that where... Uh, patents cover say uh, like a i would call them a, like a small molecule like would be in a pharmaceutical like lipitor or something like that um, you would normally be required to have 99 percent purity uh, no one impurity could be bigger than say 
percent, uh, and the aggregate of all of the imperialities couldn't be more than one percent. So that's not. I'm not saying that's law, but that's that's something like that is what you would expect if you dug down five layers into your packet, your prescribed drug. So you you can hear my surprise that 99% of an authentic substance with no impurity greater than a half percent, and yet these damn vaccines have been approved with only 50%, and they've no idea what the other 50% uh, actually comprises. So it's, it's just criminal. It's, there's no way to defend this, no way to defend this at all. So uh, everywhere we look, uh, we see bad behavior, if not criminal behavior. Yeah, I right. just find it shocking every time we come up, we, we discover more information about what was not done. Uh, that It's just devastating. Dr. Yothorpe, you were going to comment. No, I was just going to say, Dr. Lee, and this is the one way the kind of Overton window of, of uh, you know, being able to modulate public perception works. And one thing I think we've completely forgotten here, or not completely, but to a large extent, is that based on the Nuremberg Code, which came at the end of World War II, that, you know, after the war crimes committed by the Nazis uh, to try and prevent war crimes ever happening again, particularly experimentation on humans, and then followed up by the Declaration of Helsinki, which I don't think is internationally, is not legally binding, but it's a, a code of practice that all doctors should follow in medical experimentation. No person should ever be experimented on without their informed consent and full you know awareness of what's happening to them everyone that took an mrna shot or a, an ex, a, experimental uh, adenoviral vector shot from johnson johnson or astrazeneca were experimented upon because that was a phase three four clinical trial they didn't know what the effects would be in a large population but nobody was told that. Nobody got to sign a document, as far as I'm aware, that said, you are taking this vaccine and it's an experiment on you. Uh, and, that, you know, that just disappeared <laughs> from... Uh, and I don't hear any governments talking about this. I don't hear it talked about in the press. It's just astounding that, that you know, people were experimented on at that level, almost the entire population of the world, or half of it, uh, and nothing's been said. What well, except think? by all of us screaming to be heard yeah. Yeah. on the warnings that we've been giving, because we gave, we did a press conference in August 2021. August the 4th was our first stop the shot press conference. And in fact, Dr. Eden did an interview mm -hmm. on that. Yeah. And so did Dr. McCullough and a number of other international experts. We did a later one. In August, we did four press conferences in, and I say we, the Truth for Health Foundation and my desire to get the warnings out to the public. One press conference focused on the FDA approval or lack thereof process and the announcement August 23rd, 2021, that there was an approved shot, which was a flagrant lie. The Comirnaty, which was the only one that had conditional BLA licensing approval for literally only 24 hours, was never manufactured, was never available in the U.S., not yeah. for civilian or military. 
So yep. I remember that. You, I'm glad right. you brought up the nerve. We knew at the time in the middle of the rollout, and that was a day before Austin, who has a fall, uh, invalid oath of office, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, Todd Callender's team has found that he has an invalid oath of office. So his orders, his mandates were illegal. He's invalid. He's invalid in terms of his oath of office. So he's not legally the Secretary of Defense, according to the writ of Quo Warranto that Todd Callender's firm filed. So we have that going on in August 2021 again, violating the Nuremberg Code you just talked about. So as we close today's discussion, where I hope we've made some sense of all these conflicting claims about the COVID shot, the bottom line is they're all experimental. You're being experimented on. And I think Dr. Eden and Dr. Gilthorpe want to emphasize this point. Don't get any more shots if you've already gotten them. And I would say medically, push your doctors to do the medical testing to see if you have developing risk. I've listed them all in our vaccine injury treatment guide at truthforhealth.org. Dr. Eden, Dr. Gilthorpe, your closing comments today. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll be, I agree with you. If you've ever had, if you've had any shots, please don't have any more, especially if it says uh, MRNA or genetic. Uh, these are not, uh, benign. These people who are pushing this are, you know, really, they really mean business. They want to take over uh, control of your lives. Unfortunately, bluntly, I think they plan to kill people if they succeed. So the other things I would say is, you know, fight like hell to keep cash, use cash as often as you can. Please do not sign up for anything that smacks of digital ID of a fixed new format. Um, and uh, yeah, and keep keep speaking to people that these people have been rehearsing and practicing and planning for years. I don't think we can expect them to quit easily. Uh, and if we do nothing, they will just roll us over. It is down to all of us to uh, speak truth, truthfully. Uh, I will say this uh, as an amateur, uh, orientate yourself to the light, you know, um, whatever. The, our maker wants us to to survive as, as free individuals and make our own decisions. That is not desired, I think, by, by the hidden powers that, that I think influence our lives, that this is the way humans end. Uh, and I don't think it is. So as a, as a matter of faith, you know, you, I really want people to, uh, uh, you know, to get loud, get noisy, and uh, don't, don't, don't assume that your government's benign because that was in the past. Dr. Gilthorpe, thank you, Dr. Eden. That's very powerful. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you, Mike. Um, I, well, I'll just end on a on a high note, shall I? Because I think we are starting to get the message across. People are listening. You know, there's still a lot of uh, people that just claim we're tinfoil hat conspiracy theorists, but I think there's enough people that know injured, sick people. I mean, excess deaths through the world are going through the roof compared to previous years, which should never happen if it, it was a real pandemic, let's face it. Uh, there should be less excess deaths than before. Um, so something's happening. Uh, so two things that are going on or went this week. There was a there's a citizen led inquiry into Canada's COVID-19 response. Um, and I'll post the link on. I'll send you the link, Dr. Lee, so you can post it. So that's happening in Canada this month. Uh, there are inquiries happening in all major cities in Canada with 
expert testimonies from I think six hundred and seventy six testif- testifying fifty eight experts in eight separate hearings. They're all being recorded, uh, and then also. This week, there was uh, many experts gave testimony at an international COVID summit at the European Parliament, uh, and that's all been recorded and online at Children Health Defence. So, um, I would I would go and listen to those because you'll get a lot of important information uh, from experts um, and people that have really thought this through quite carefully. Thank you so much. Thank you both. We will continue to be truth tellers and all of these resources are available at www.truthforhealth.org. Please sign up for our email alerts, donate to support our work to bring truth for hope and help against the lies and deceptions. This is Dr. Lee for America. We'll be back again tomorrow with another whistleblower report. Thank you.